I came here to bury the hatchet with my son, only to find out that the ground was frozen solid. What is it you want from him? I don't know. Acknowledgement, maybe, or... Respect is earned, not bestowed. Respect? I don't need that from him. Yet you covet his success. Candor seems to be a trait he admires. Honesty is the trait he admires most. And you should honestly consider why you're so competitive with your own son. Techno Babble, Psycho Babble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and Klingon painstick connoisseur. And I'm Elizabeth, student of humanoid psychology. And is that an antenna on your head or are you just happy to see me? I'm always happy to see you, but the answer is not no. A <laughs> <laughs> mission each week. Is too boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I take a look at the issues which plague fathers and sons, from the subtle and poetic to the downright violent. We begin with the original series second season classic Journey to Babel, written by DC Fontana and directed by Joseph Pevney, airing in 1967. The Enterprise welcomes aboard famed Vulcan ambassador Sarek and his wife Amanda to escort them along with a host of other dignitaries to an important Federation conference. Unbeknownst to Kirk and company, these are Spock's parents. Spock and Sarek haven't spoken in years, owing to a disagreement over Spock's choice to join Starfleet instead of joining the Vulcan Science Academy, or in Kirk's words, perhaps because they're both stubborn. Amanda, for her part, admires the Vulcan way despite her own human emotions. The journey is volatile for reasons besides the tension, uh, logical disagreement between Spock and Sarek, as the various delegates are already at odds over the issues that are to be resolved on Babel. Sarek of Vulcan, do you vote to admit Corridon to the Federation? The vote will not be taken here, Ambassador Goff. My government's instructions will be heard in the council chambers on Babel. No, you! How do you vote? Sarek of Vulcan. Why must you know, Telarit? In council, his vote carries others. I will know where he stands and why. Adding to this, an alien craft is flitting about the Enterprise without explanation. Sarek is confronted on a few occasions by the Tellurite ambassador, Gav, who eventually makes a scene in front of the other delegates over a contentious accusation of illegal mining. Gav soon turns up murdered in a method which implicates Sarek directly. Kirk is forced to confront Sarek with the circumstantial accusation, but Sarek collapses suddenly from a cardiac condition of some kind. The condition has been recurring, including during Gav's murder. Bones is forced to consider a dangerous operation on Sarek, dangerous not only to Sarek himself, but to those who might donate blood to keep him alive, especially Spock. Well, that is procedure they're discussing would require tremendous amounts of blood for the patient. There isn't enough Vulcan blood and plasma on board to even begin an operation of this type. We've run a number of blood tests on Mr. Spock. It isn't true Vulcan blood either. It uh, has human blood elements in it. It should be possible to filter out the human factors. Even you couldn't give that much blood, Spock. It would kill you. 
Meanwhile, further investigation of the alien craft reveals some sort of espionage occurring aboard the Enterprise herself. On top of everything else, Kurt finds himself in a knife fight with the Andorian ambassador, leaving him critically injured. With Spock in temporary command in this unusual and critical situation, he feels compelled to abandon his blood donation to Sarek and maintain his post. Amanda entreats her son to channel his human half and choose his love for Sarek over logic. Of course, this creates the central paradox of the father-son relationship, trapped by their own logic and devotion to duty and service. It falls to Kirk to resolve the situation, who puts his own life in jeopardy by reassuming command, feigning good health to convince Spock that he may report to sickbay for the operation on his father. Kirk should probably be in sickbay with the Vulcans, but the alien craft reappears and its signal is traced to the brig where the Andorian who attacked Kirk is being held, with a secret transmitter hidden in one of his antennae. Got all that? With the signal cut off, the alien craft begins attacking the Enterprise. The Andorian turns out not to be Andorian at all, hence why his antenna can fall off so easily. Kirk manages to outwit the Orion craft, Spock figures out they're Orions, before it and the Orion spy self-destruct to avoid capture. Bones successfully treats Kirk, Spock, and Sarek, saving all their lives. In the wake of the surgery, Spock and his father connect briefly and cynically over their shared distaste for Amanda's emotional reaction to their logical attitudes. So, yeah... No, that's a that's a lot of plot. <laughs> it's a it's a goofy episode in some ways. It's a, you know it's, as I mentioned, it's a classic for a lot of reasons. Um, it introduces a lot of very important Star Trek race. I mean, the Vulcans were introduced, but this is our other Vulcan after Spock has been um, introduced to the series, and we get the Tellurites and Andorians and Orions, a bunch of um, important. Oh, they're all introduced in this episode. Uh, they have some of them have been mentioned, but we haven't seen any on screen oh, until okay. this episode, which is um, foundational, right, for a lot of the, the, Trek, the Trek canon. But more importantly, it's it sets up this relationship between Spock and Sarek, which is obviously what we're talking about this week. So this episode was written by DC Fontana, who is a woman, and uh, the way she decides to capture this father-son dynamic is interesting to me, because obviously they're, you know, Spock, as we talked about in our uh, Pike episode a couple weeks ago, has chosen, for the most part at this point, his Vulcan self over his human self, which is the source of, of conflict in this episode. And yet, despite having sort of honored his father's contribution to his self in that way, does not have his approval, <laughs> right? I mean, that might be why he's honoring his Vulcan self more than his human self to get his father's approval. After all these years among humans, you still haven't learned to smile. Humans smile with so little provocation. The situation between my father and myself has not changed. Mr. Spock, explain the computer components. I gave Spock his first instruction in computers, Captain. He chose to devote his knowledge to Starfleet instead of the Vulcan Science Academy. If you will excuse me, Captain. There could be a lot of reasons why Spock is acting that way. Did he want to deny his human self because he saw his father not accepting his human self? And I know there's a bunch of different like ways that thread comes in together, but that's one idea. Okay. Um, is he honoring his Vulcan self as a way to compensate for his father's disapproval? Like there's a lot of there's a lot of different possibilities um, and dynamics happening there. Yeah, there's something so true about that, right? Where you're you overcompensating or trying too hard. I mean, that's, I guess what I'm getting at is there's this implication here that masculinity is tied up with this idea of logic and reason. 
and is the source of conflict, but also pride, but also the distance, but also the closeness between them, right? It's like, it's, it's all of it. And it's so, <laughs> I mean, Amanda herself gets so frustrated with both of them. Sarek understands my reason. Well, I don't. It's not human. Mother, how can you have lived on Vulcan so long, married a Vulcan, raised a son on Vulcan without understanding what it means to be a Vulcan? Well, if this is what it means, I don't want to know. It means to adopt a philosophy, a way of life which is logical and beneficial. We cannot disregard that philosophy merely for personal gain, no matter how important that gain might be. Nothing is as important as your father's life. Can you imagine? what my father would say if I were to agree. Which feels true, and yet she she chose she chose this emotionless man as her husband. A wife and mother getting frustrated with her husband and son? That never happens. <laughs> what are you talking about? It, it, it is an interesting um, split. Most alien races in the Star Trek universe are just exaggerated parts of the human psyche. Right. You know, like the Klingons are the warring aggressive part. The Vulcans are the really logical part. The Orions are the piratey part. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Perfect. We're all secret pirates. Is that is that how that goes? Of one sort or another, yes. <laughs> of one sort or another. Okay. Um, so, so taking into account that just kind of foundational way that we've imagined these other races to be like they're just exaggerated aspects of of humans which is a little egocentric but since we don't know any other alien races i'm gonna forgive us about it for right now um but but there but i think that split is also present in just our culture and kind of like psychic zeitgeist in general you know we think of like masculine and feminine as being these opposite things and they're you're either one or the other and you know so like and there's and it's a struggle i think for most men to accept the feminine parts of themselves and a struggle for most women to accept the masculine parts of ourselves and how do you balance that like not even getting into the gender fluid non-binary you know um aspect of that of that gender discussion as we've discussed previously there are some characteristics and traits that are associated with gender. And, and I think that's really a cultural thing. You know, like we think of women as emotional and we think of men as logical. Historically and biologically, like, we, like one male and one female make a new life, you know. So in that way, we each come from both a masculine source and a feminine source that have to come together in order to create a new life. Um, and so we have these kind of, what I think of as psychic ancestry to those two uh, poles. You know, like we are both masculine and we are both feminine. And I think that has gotten overlaid with our cultural sense of gender. And so it's really, really hard to separate the two of them. Does that make sense? Do I need to rephrase this? No, uh, I, I think I know where you're getting at. And we, we touched on this a little bit in one of our, I forget which part, but one of our um, uh, trans allegory episodes. Well, you had mentioned how you, you're decou trying to decouple in your studies of Jung, especially um, the sort of gendered ideas that he presents yeah. about our psyche from that essential binary that is baked into the culture that he comes from and that we're still a part of um, despite mm -hmm. our 
continuing evolution. And I, I know, I think I know exactly what you're saying where we kind of metaphorize, is that a word? Whatever. <laughs> uh, we, we take this biological aspect to the, to, to ourselves, which you mentioned about how it literally takes uh, female and male gametes at this point <laughs> uh, to create any human being. Um, to look at that and say, well, and that what that means is it takes the the er female and the er male coming together to create a complete person. Um, and what what I get from that in terms of how that creates these sort of psychological issues and cultural problems in our society is that too often we feel because in that very specific way we are called at some of us at a very particular point in our lives and only in a very essential biological way to fulfill one specific role at one specific time that we have to adhere to that all the time. And it's not within the yeah. realm of possibility or socially acceptable to move around <laughs> and not be so uh, tied down to that function. No, I think that's a really good way to summarize what I was saying. And just to take it one step further, you know, I think humans are always striving toward wholeness and wholeness is having everything present in various different kinds of balance. You know, like some people are more masculine than feminine. Some people are 50-50. Some people are more feminine than masculine. But everything is still contained within that wholeness, you know, and and I think that's really hard for a lot of people to conceptualize and accept that I have I have both masculine and feminine traits and often people will try to deny one side of themselves in order to honor the other but I don't really think that's true and and even more so than that the idea of like what a mother is or what a father is a is culturally gendered but if you think about these qualities um of like what is like the archetypal father, for example, like taking kind of gender aside, but like there's this sense of like having direction and logic and purpose. And like all I, I think everyone can kind of feel into that energy and of that quality, which we have labeled masculine and which we have labeled as like the ideal father. But how do we have that within ourselves? How do we find and tap into that energy that is our own sense of direction and purpose and agency within our own lives, regardless of what you call that? And, and then there's also this other sense of nurturing and care and affection, which we have labeled feminine. But if you still take away that label, that's still something everybody needs. We need love and affection and nurturance. and and. And both those things can coexist. And again, it's the coming together of them that creates a new life. You can't have life without, if you only have one and not the other. Well, what's interesting about that in terms of how it relates to this episode is those archetypes, those cultural archetypes are overlaid with the egocentric or, uh, you know, uh, homo sapien centric uh, allegorization of the species, right? Where it's the human who is uh, given the, is, is Spock's mother, right? It's not, he has yeah. a Vulcan mother and a human father. It's the other way around, implying if humans are the balance between these different psychological aspects that are um, allegorizing these species, then with Star Trek might be saying 
might be saying here is that that feminine energy is actually something much more aspirational, <laughs> right? That if we're stuck in the father male Vulcan side of things, you know, it's it can be debilitating. And that's that's what we see here. If it weren't for Kirk tapping into his compassion. I can't stand him for his loyalty. For doing his duty, but I'm not gonna let him commit patricide. Jim, if you stand, you could start to bleed again. Bones? Sarek will die without that operation. And you can't operate without transfusions from Spark. I'll convince Spark I'm all right. And order him to report here. He made himself to suffer and tapped into his intimate knowledge of his friend and his vulnerab the vulnerability of his friend, knowing that the only way he was going to get Spock to relinquish command was to feel as though he did not have to take up that responsibility so that he could save his father. Um, that was what resolved the situation, because otherwise either the ship was going to be not able to solve the situation with, uh, with the Orions or Sarek was going to die. One of those things was going to happen if Spock was going to adhere fully to this masculine Vulcan part of himself. Yeah. And do you see how unbalanced that is? Absolutely. The other paradox here is, so Amanda entreats Spock to donate his blood so that Zarek will live. And she gets really frustrated with Spock that he won't do it. But of course, for Spock, he's sort of stuck because if he were to do the human thing, and put his father's life and his sort of duty as a son and his relationship over his duty to the ship and his Starfleet, in his mind, uh, his father wouldn't approve of that because he would be doing the human thing. So in order to keep his father's approval, he has to kill him. <laughs> That's hilarious. So this whole of like, no thank, you know, like, you saved my life? and How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I, well, Elizabeth, I know you're neither a father nor a son, but... What? It's I it it feels um it feels right. <laughs> I got to tell you even yeah. not being a Vulcan it feels very familiar this idea that it's you're always choosing one over the other. You're always mm. um in that stuck between that rock and the hard place with especially your father with at least for me with with my mother there's more nuance and there's more room for grace i think which i know these things it sounds like it sort of gender stereotypes i i hear that as i'm saying it but it doesn't make it less true at least for me and i would i i think it's sort of universally true with sons and dads that there's often this sense of like it's you're gonna have to split yourself and go all in on one side of this issue or we're not going to be able to have any kind of relationship i i hear that and my heart breaks for that like that's really sad uh, I, and while while i hear that that is a really that's definitely your experience and probably the experience of a lot of other sons and fathers i would preface that that only happens if the father is split if the father has the emotion emotional capacity to accept the inherent contradictions within himself to be a mother 
a mothering figure and a mothering presence in addition to a fathering figure and presence, then that split doesn't happen. But if the father is like that, then there's less possibility for how the son father-son relationship can develop. We next look at Will Riker and his estranged father, Kyle, from TNG's second season. The Icarus Factor was written by David Assel and Robert L. McCullough, directed by Robert Iskov, and aired in 1989. After only a year or so, as Picard's first officer, Will has been offered command of the starship Ares, which his captain assumes he will take. Picard is intentionally enigmatic about the attaché who's been sent to the Enterprise to brief Will about the Ares mission, as he thinks the advisor's identity will be a nice surprise for Riker. The advisor turned out to be Kyle Riker, Will's father, and the reunion is, well, not exactly nice at all. I'm proud of you, son. If you'll excuse me, I've got my duties to attend to. When you've settled in, we can complete our briefing. Have security arrange an escort for this gentleman. Father and son are distant, cold, and estranged ever since Will's mother died. For his part, Kyle is every bit as affable and popular as his son. He even has a romantic past with Dr. Pulaski. The Ares mission has the potential to be quite dangerous, which seems to have prompted Kyle to repair his relationship with his son, but Will is harboring considerable and understandable resentment for his father's neglect and selfishness over the years. Kyle may be proud of his son's accomplishments, but he's also very competitive with him, as Troy brings to light. Pulaski also tells Will a harrowing story about Kyle that he wasn't aware of, as well as the fact that despite she and Kyle being very much in love after this event, Kyle prioritized his career over her, something which Will unwittingly repeated in his own life with Troy. With both men riled up with unresolved issues, the pair fall back on a ritual from Will's childhood, a kind of rock'em sock'em robots martial arts contest called Ampujitsu. Meanwhile, Worf is being moody, even for Worf. Wesley, Geordi, and Data attempt to discover why. It turns out to be the 10th anniversary of Worf's Rite of Ascension, which is normally a day to uh, celebrate with one's fellow warriors and family. Given Worf's isolation on the Enterprise, Wesley organizes a makeshift ceremony for him on the holodeck, safety's off, I guess, complete with paint sticks, red smoke, and lots of Klingon breast beating. In the end, Worf is in tremendous physical pain and thus very happy. Pulaski and Troy commiserate over their one-time lover's regression to physical fighting and some gender stereotyping. In spite of human evolution, there are still some traits that are endemic to gender. You think that they're going to knock each other's brains out because they're men? Human males are unique. Fathers continue to regard their sons as children, even into adulthood, and sons continue to chafe against what they perceive as their father's expectations of them. The fight is brutal, with Will admitting his hurt and anger over his mother's death, how he wished Kyle had died in her stead. Kyle admits how he fathered Will the best he knew how to, reeling from his wife's death and with few bows in his quiver besides encouraging Will's competitiveness. This airing of feelings helps to mend fences, at least a little bit, and in an effort to break the cycle of putting ambition over relationships, Will chooses to decline his promotion and remain on the Enterprise. You know, for an episode that's really focused on, like, the father-son relationship, so, so we have, like, the father-son relationship with Will and Kyle. We almost have, like, the lack of a father with Worf, which I think is also, like, an interesting mm -hmm. angle there. But then we have 
that conversation between Troy and Pulaski, which like completely fails the Bechtel test. You know, it's like as soon as there are two women alone on screen, they're going to talk about men. It's almost as if they never really grow up at all, isn't it? Perhaps that's part of their charm and why we find them so attractive, particularly men like Commander Riker and his father. Uh, so it's all I, about the dudes. It's all about the dudes. Um, and and masculine energy is part of the whole. But still. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also this thing with the two of them. Yeah, they're talking about, not only are they talking about men, they're talking about men that they have sexual romantic pasts with. And they're talking about like bearing the emotional responsibility of dealing with their men. You know what I mean? Like I want to, I want to circle back to that conversation. Um, But I do feel like I need to share a a little, a quick story, Um, which is when I was a teenager, I got into a physical fight with my dad and it's, yeah, it's, um, it was about a lot of things in retrospect at the time. It was about, the stupidest thing it was about um an argument over literally how to hammer a nail into a piece of wood that's how it started and it escalated and a lot of things that had not been said between us a lot of trauma frankly but just you know uh bottled up feelings came out and i uh got into this fight with him and my Clothes got a little torn up, and I I walked all the way to my mother's house, which was, that was like two hours away on foot, just steaming the whole way. And as awful as that was, and I'm not not recommending this, (laughs) but it's just when, as as stupid as, (laughs) and goofy as the uh, Anbu Jitsu fight is, again, I have to tell you, it's like, yeah, this feels right (laughs) in terms of just, a thing that fathers and sons do sometimes where it gets to this really absurd physical level. Um, and probably I think you would agree. Uh, the best thing for Will and, and uh, Kyle to do would be to sit down with Troy or another therapist probably um, to hash out these things that some of these things finally get said after what 12 years not yeah. having talked about it at least um finally get aired and that it is the airing of those feelings and the and the um sharing of of, of those of, of those bottled up sentiments that ends up creating a little bit of healing between them but to get there they had to go through literally hitting each other yeah. with big bats and you want to talk about masculine masculine energy? That's it's hard to get. <laughs> it's hard to get more than that. I know. I was like, that's a very fa- phallic, you know, object that they're also using <laughs> in that moment. Like, I'm just going to name that. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can do an episode about phallic objects as as weapons because there's <laughs> several examples I could think of off the top of my head. There's um, Spock fighting for his mate um, oh, in yeah. a muck time. There's Harry Kim getting hit with those phallic objects by the succubus alien ladies when they want his DNA. Yeah, there's a lot of that. We'll have to come back to that. Um, Phallic trick. I'm curious, you said it feels right. And what does right mean? Thank you. Yeah, by right, I mean 
I see that. So my logical mind looks at the, these two guys getting into these ridiculous outfits and doing this ridiculous thing and says, you fucking idiots, what are you doing? Why are you being so stupid? My emotional brain, I guess, says, yep, I, I can see myself doing this. Mm. I have seen myself do this when I was younger, right? On some level. It's like, maybe what Troy, there's something to what Troy says, which is what I wanted to circle back to, to Pulaski, mm -hmm. where she says, no matter how far humans evolve, some characteristics will always be gendered. And maybe this mm. need to precurse emotional vulnerability with violence is one of them. Uh, I don't... I think that dynamic is definitely familiar. I don't know exactly how gendered it is. Like, I remember getting into the dumbest shouting match with my mom as a teenager like I think it was literally over like how many cookies I had just eaten which is not really <laughs> about it was not about the cookies at all it was about so many other things and that was just the you know the thing that lit the switch um so I think a lot of times when people are angry at somebody else like an anger and aggression, those are not bad emotions, you know, like I actually think being able to feel and express anger in a healthy way is something more people need to learn how to do. Um, Cause anger shows you where your boundaries are. It shows you like what you are and are not okay with. And aggression can also be a healthy life force energy. It's not necessarily something that you should squash or avoid or be disdained in any way but like you can cross over into unhealthy expressions of those very reasonable emotions and so with that caveat being said so often when we're angry like that's actually the shield that's hiding us from feeling hurt and feeling vulnerable and like more often than not, when you really drill down to like what is underneath anger, it is such profound hurt that the person who's angry just can't feel like they don't want to feel how hurt they are. And so they're going to be angry instead. And clearly in this story between Kyle and Will, that hurt is the death of uh, Kyle's wife, Will's mother. You should have been the one to die, not her. You were too young to understand. And I was too hurt to explain. You were never too hurt for anything. She was your mother, but she was my wife. And when she died, all that kept me going was you. You had a strange way of showing it all these years. That's why I never won. You were cheating. By the time you were 12 years old, I knew I couldn't take it, but I had to keep you interested. I had to keep you challenged, didn't I? I always hated you for that. He doesn't say this, but essentially what I heard was it was my own lack of emotional intelligence that led to this dynamic between us. Like, I didn't know how to handle myself and I couldn't take care of you or show you how to handle your emotions. And I think a huge part of parenting, you know, is about, you know, there's the food, water, shelter, you know, making sure that your child is a lot, can stay alive because especially infants and young children are completely dependent on their caregivers for survival. But also parents are there to like help their children learn how to emotionally regulate because babies can't do that. They literally need the nervous system of their caretakers to learn how to calm down. And mm -hmm. as children get older, 
they eventually take those things which were externally taken care of by their caregivers and internalize them. Like that's ideally how that goes. But if a parent never shows a child how to regulate their emotions, they don't know how to do that. They're going to have to figure, you know, they, they take on the coping mechanisms of their parents for better and worse. I would suspect that a lot of people, a lot of parents, in fact, hearing that that is one of the core responsibilities of parenthood would not have thought of that. Not necessarily disagree. Yeah. Like when you explain it, it makes perfect sense. Of course, that's how it is. But you don't think of it. I don't think of it, at least, and as like, of course, that's that's part of what being a parent is. is one of my principal jobs. You think of, as you said, the food, water, shelter, the the um, the the physical survival of of your child is the first thing you think about. And in addition to that, you think about the responsibility to um, educate them. Yeah so that they can survive the world or, or thrive in the world. And you think about educating them maybe in a, in a left-brained way. Like, you need, you need to know things. Yeah, very rational, very logical, which, which, you know, we were saying that's more of a, like, masculine Vulcan trait in, in the first part of this episode. But, like, really, mm -hmm. Western culture is very left-brain-centric. You know, like, we, we really downplay the emotional, creative, irrational aspects of ourselves um so that's the bigger can of worms than than just this like father-son gender dynamic that we're just like trying to focus on right now what i think is really positive here like i think this is a pretty good episode it's not great but what i think is really effective despite the you know the stuff with the women and the kind of gender whatever nonsense yeah. is will recognizes that despite the fact that he barely speaks to his father anymore, he is repeating his father's mistakes. Yeah. And he recognizes them as mistakes, which Kyle doesn't really. Like, he, Kyle and Pulaski have this talk, and she's like... Face facts, Kyle. You're crusty. You have a reputation for being hard as nails and getting the job done. But underneath it all, you're not so bad. Some of us even love you. And then there's Will. I thought I knew you, Kyle. Haven't we grown beyond the point where we resolve our problems with physical conflict? I think you're overreacting. I'm overreacting. You're the one that's going out to fight with his own son. And it's kind of your fault that your son and you have this relationship. He is not hearing it. Yeah. And Will sees through this story about um, how Kyle had chosen to prioritize his career over his relationship with, with Pulaski, um, how he did the exact same thing with Troy right before the series starts. Yeah. And he's seeing, oh God, this like I said, despite the fact that they're not in communication directly anymore, he is has internalized these the these ways of regulating emotions, as you put it, to the point where he's repeating the same mistakes. And so he chooses at the end, despite everyone expecting him to take this great promotion and this big dangerous mission and look how great I am. Look big Captain Riker. He says, No, I don't I don't have to do that. Yeah. I'm gonna stay here with the people that I love and work on myself. He chose relationships over ambition. And good thing he did too, because we see a lot of growth. This is middle of the second season, right? Yeah. So we see a lot of growth in Riker, especially immediately following um, this season and, and moving forward. Yeah, and, and I think you bring up a really good point that they're playing out the same kind of emotional strategies. Again, like where did mm -hmm. Will learn that from? And we can be oblivious to the fact that like we are repeating the same stories and 
to bring up Carl Jung again, who is a frequent um, guest speaker on this podcast, um, <laughs> you know, he said the greatest burden uh, for a child is the unlived lives of their parents. And I think that's really true. You know, you know, I know we're kind of focusing on father son dynamics with this, but you know, in my own life, I'm really taking a look at, oh, the things I'm afraid about in my own future for my own life. I'm realizing, oh, those are things like I saw my mom like do or not do or be limited by. And I'm so afraid of that happening to me. And it's like, oh, that's my first model for what my life can look like. And learning how I can not be limited by the things that limited my mom is is hard. It's really hard, even though intellectually I know it's true. Emotionally, it's like, how do you how do you grow past the examples you were given? Yeah, we'll definitely do a mother daughter um, uh, sequel to this episode That's at some point because there's plenty plenty of those in Star Trek as well. Um, but I think I think what what's relevant especially relevant in terms of what you're saying is in terms of how it relates to fathers and sons is that we see one of the things we see essentially about our same gender parent, if we have one, Mm -hmm. um, is their gender and finding a way to model their behavior because we are looking for ways to express our gender identities. Right. And we say, well, I see myself as in some way being you, but I want to be you, but better, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's that's kind of the experience of being a child. And so to the extent that we feel gender and want to express gender, we're going to attach ourselves to the parent whose gender most uh, resembles our own. We finish up by looking again at Ben and Jake Sisko from the classic DS9 episode, The Visitor, written by Michael Taylor, directed by David Livingston, and airing at the beginning of the fourth season in 1995. A young budding writer named Melanie tracks down an elderly Jake Sisko at his home in swampy Louisiana. Jake is now a somewhat famous but reclusive writer who quit his career abruptly after publishing two major works many decades ago. Jake is moved by the serendipity of her appearance on this day of all days, and so sits her down by the fire to tell her his story. In DS9's present, Jake has accompanied his father on a scientific mission aboard the Defiant regarding some tech-tech with the wormhole. There's an accident which forces father and son to save the ship from exploding, but the technicalities of this action appear to vaporize Ben in front of his son's eyes. There is a funeral, and we see the young Jake take the first steps towards healing while the socio-political situation with DS9, Bajor, and the Klingons unfolds around him. However, one night, Ben appears in Jake's quarters for a few moments before vanishing again. What Jake learns over the course of many years is that his father is tethered to him in some sort of quantum suspension, which allows Ben to appear to him for brief spurts according to the fluctuations within the wormhole which created this bond. Although Jake grows, becomes a successful writer, and marries, Ben's infrequent but devastating reappearances arrest Jake's life as he feels responsible for his father's situation. He quits writing to learn science to restore his father's normal existence. His wife leaves him. 
he becomes profoundly lonely and obsessed. At first, Corinna was very patient. She supported what I was trying to do. But I got so caught up in my work, I didn't notice I was losing her. By the time I had entered my doctoral program, it was over between us. Now, Jake is the old man in Melanie's company and has deciphered the secret to saving his father and the boy that he was from this tragic fate. He has poisoned himself so that he will die when Ben reappears for the final time, which is today of all days. He passes on his father's advice not to let life pass you by before sending her away. Poke your head up every once in a while. Take a look around. See what's going on. It's life, Jake. It's life, Melanie. And you can miss it if you don't open your eyes. Ben appears, now far younger than his son, who says goodbye, sending his father back through time to the moment of the accident. This time, Ben avoids his fate and rescues them both. So I rewatched this episode in preparing for this podcast, and I had seen it before, but I cried anyway. Like, oh my god, this is like, this just tugs at my heartstrings. Like, that, it's such a good episode. Yeah, this is a popular uh, episode, and I think deservedly so. I have... I always seem to have a thing with DS9, and I, I maybe that's worth getting on on your therapist couch about at some point. But um, I definitely agree. This is an incredibly moving episode. Wonderful music, incredible performance. Tony Todd, who's the actor who plays old Jake, you know, well, not teenage Jake, yeah. <laughs> uh, middle-aged and all the other phases of his life. Uh, incredible actor. So good. Um, really so brings good. a lot of gravitas to that role and i think is what really sells this uh this bond between them and then avery brooks is at one of his best um points here so i really love that um i also often cry (laughs) watching this episode it is incredibly moving where i get a little stuck with this episode in particular is i don't quite understand what the message is. And maybe there doesn't have to be one, but I, I'm hoping you'll help me pick this apart. So we have talked about Ben and Jake now a couple of times in this podcast. One episode, which we did last week, The Explorers, happens before this. Uh, and then uh, Nor the Battle to the Strong, where Jake is in that horrible battle with the Klingons and Dr. Bashir happens after. So this is in between. And, of course, in Explorers, Jake is finding out he wants to be a writer, and his dad is, you know, being a good dad about that, um, and finding ways, they're beginning the process of, of separating, and, and, J- and Ben is contemplating sending him out into the world, essentially, uh, to, to carve his own path. Dad, before you say anything, I'm turning down the fellowship. Turning it down why? I'm just not ready to go. Jake, an opportunity like this doesn't come along every day. I can defer admission for a year. If I want to go then, I I still can. Well, that's fine, but why will things be different in a year? I don't know. They just might be, that's all. We're realizing, Ben's confronting in the later episode, the season five episode, the fear of having, having him make his own decisions now and what that could mean. Uh, in, in the worst case scenarios. It seems just 
yesterday. He was five years old. Clinging to me because he just scraped his knee. And I was the only one in the world who could make it better. I remember sometimes getting up in the middle of the night and slipping into his room just to make sure he was all right. And I'd sit there and watch him sleep. And I think to myself, that no matter what, I wasn't going to let anything bad happen to this child. Now he's a sector away in a war zone and there's nothing I can do to protect him. So I, I like that transition. However, um, what we see here is that Jake is, because of this sci-fi conceit of this episode, Jake is keeps having a this revisitation of his dad in his life in a way that if Ben had actually died in this accident, wouldn't happen. And Jake would go through the process of grieving and moving on, hopefully. And I can see Ben's reappearances as allegorizing lots of different things, but in general, not being able to let go, which I think that's what I get out of it is like, oh, this is a sci-fi way of saying, here's a person unable to let go of their parent after they die, tragically. But then the solution at the end is for Jake to say, And for the boy that I was, he needs you more than you know. Don't let go. So mm -hmm. I'm just confused about what what the lesson for Ben is. What is Ben supposed to do? Because he's the only one who remembers any of this, right? From his yeah, brief little totally. appearances. Jake doesn't remember. So Ben carries these brief little appearances with Jake and that conversation at the end with old Jake with him back to the present when he saves them and changes the timeline. And what does he now do with that new information as a father? And I'm just confused. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, that's very confusing because timelines and alternate realities and multiple universes and how many things broke when Jake changed the past? You know, like... Yeah, <laughs> like him telling Melanie this great advice. Now go off in the swamp. I'm about to erase you from existence. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> everything that you've experienced is about to change. Um but let's just assume that actually just things, there are parallel timelines and they just continue on in their own way. So going back with the first thing you said about like the allegory of in this story, the way that Ben reappears being an allegory for the way that a child can't let go of the relationship they have with their parent, even after that parent dies. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can definitely see that. While you were talking, I was also thinking about how sometimes parents don't let go of their children, which honestly like, mm creates a lot of conflict sometimes you know like like we were talking about last week teenagers are supposed to rebel they're supposed to figure out who they are independent of their parents and if that doesn't happen you kind of have a stilted adulthood and you know I think I think we all have seen people and, and parents who just like cling on to their children like they are not willing to let them go even if even though there's this idea of like parents are supposed to launch their children into the world and like failure to launch is seen as usually problematic you know it's like oh you're 35 and still living at home okay you know like and you're unemployed and living yeah. at home tell me more about that it's a really delicate balance to find within with between parents and children of like how much do you stay attached and how much do you and how much do parents let their kids go 
you know, despite mm-hmm. the fact that, like, they're always going to see you as, like, their little boy or girl or child. They're always going to want to be protective of you. As we see with, you know, that's what Ben is wrestling with um, in the wartime episode. He's like, I can't protect my son, and this is the worst feeling in the world. Um, and, and, yeah, I think during the episode, I had a lot of... I felt a lot of conflict, like, watching Jake basically pause his life to try to save Ben. And we were talking about individualistic values last week as well, where in Western culture and with most Western families, there's this idea of the the children are supposed to be independent and not take care of their parents, you know, especially when they're young. And I think that's a little bit more universally accepted. And then like how you give back to your family as you get older and are able to contribute. It was really hard for me to watch Jake let go of his writing career, lose his marriage, basically like kind of give up his own life in order to save his father. Mm-hmm. Like that was really, yeah. really hard for me to watch. And I think that was hard for Ben to watch too. He was just like, stop doing yeah. that. No. Like, and again, like that's a parental thing of like, I'm supposed to take care of you. You're not supposed to take care of me. You're not supposed to sacrifice yourself for me. I'm glad that in the later half of Jake's life, he did return to writing. And I do think about like this whole episode from Ben's perspective probably lasted five or 10 minutes. Right. You know, and just so quickly, like meet your son decades apart within such a short period of time. And then to suddenly watch your son die and then be thrown back into the universe. Like that's a lot to fucking happen in 10 minutes. Yeah. It makes me think when you put it that way, if Jake had had a different, had had just been different about the way he rea- responded to this reality yeah. that Ben is now this occasional visitor uh, in his life um, and had said, wow, this sucks. I wish you were there all the time. But the opportunity now, if, if, um, if Jake had lived his life differently, Ben could have met his great, great grandkids. Mm-hmm. Right before he died, he he had the opportunity to witness the unfolding of the next generations in a way that is not usually possible for humans. And it's not maybe what either of them would have chosen, but you you do have to kind of roll with the punches sometimes in life and make the best of a situation. And that is something that is occurring to me now is yeah. like what that what that could have been. Um, if it hadn't taken the sort of tragic turn of, of being being stuck with this. And I, I agree with you, it is cathartic to see Jake live his true self in the end. I mean, what happens with, with Melanie? This whole episode is a narration, it's a story. He's yeah. telling a story because he's a storyteller at his core mm-hmm. and he's being himself again. What I'm still trying to get my head around is how stepping away from the emotionalism of it what what do what visitors do we tend to carry in non sci-fi ways with us um sharing a lot i guess i'm i'm the son in our in our dyad here so i have to mess <laughs> up i haven't spoken to my dad in about a decade a little more than that he might be dead um he's still around in my head yeah <laughs> right i still to to put it a Poetically, I still talk to him, and they're not always great conversations. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's there, and I would imagine people whose parents have have died or left or disappeared or um, what what have you, or 
are around but are have I don't know dementia something like that um, have similar visitors in their life where there's this version of your parent that you remember from childhood who's still present with you yeah and affects your life I think in one of our first episodes we we touched briefly on like the id the ego and the super ego and the very first episode very first episode um Go back and listen if you haven't. <laughs> uh, so the way that our parents talk to us when we're little is the way we learn to talk to ourselves. And and for me, I have like a very like critical voice in my head. You know, my inner critic, I think I got from my mom who was doing the best she knew how and probably her mom was doing the best she knew how to keep her daughter safe in a world that felt really unsafe. And so there was a lot of, you have to do this and it has to be this way or you are not okay and I can't tolerate that feeling of you not being okay. Short version. Um, she's not like that anymore, you know? And as I've like started to notice, like where did I get this inner voice from? And I'm realizing it was from that those early relationships and then looking at who my mom is now and realizing like you are not the same person you really got a lot softer when you got older and we have a really good relationship now you know small aside um when i told my mom that we were doing this she was like i'm so happy for you i'm never gonna listen <laughs> <laughs> she does she doesn't like oh, no. star trek she doesn't like star trek um, so she's never watched it but so mom if you ever listen to this hi and let's talk later because i'm sure you have feelings <laughs> Um, well, that is definitely her worst quality, not liking Star Trek. That's almost <laughs> unforgivable. Yeah. There's kind of like this psychic image we have of our parents versus who they actually are in real life. And sometimes those are very similar and sometimes they're very different. But we all have like our inner, we all have not only our inner child, we have our inner parents. We have all these mm. versions of people we know in our head and we talk to them. It's it's a interesting kind of time travel, you know, to have all these different versions of people from different points of your life in your head, giving you advice, sometimes terrible advice. And how do you sort that all out? Jake gives himself and Ben the opportunity to have another chance, as yeah. he puts it. And that's the fantasy part of it, of course, right? We We don't get we don't really get those second chances in, in our lives. Don't you see? We're going to get a second chance. But with at least the ghosts that we still talk to, I guess we can change the conversation whenever we want. Mm -hmm. Because we do have some control over how that goes. We have we at least have the control over what we say and when we say it. If we want to avoid being arrested the way Jake was in this episode and letting life pass us by, then we had better find some peace with that, I think. As I'm studying psychology and as I've just been in therapy for a long time, th this concept of the inner child has come up a lot. And how do you reparent yourself essentially how do you become the parent that you needed 
when you were younger instead of shaming yourself or beating yourself up or whatever it is that's like imagine a little kid being yelled at by their parent and how if you were watching someone do that to their child you would be like what the hell stop but then that's happening inside our own heads all the time how do you create the ideal mother father parent for yourself to be like you know what I feel like crap, I feel really disappointed, and I'm gonna be okay. Like, how do you talk to yourself the way the perfect parent would? You know, we eventually grow up to be adults, and we have so much more agency and control over our own lives than we did as kids. But emotionally, we can still feel like kids. And so how does your adult self start to take care of your younger self, which is existing within you, but what I see in this episode with Jake at the end is he actually gives himself that chance. He gets to actually say, I'm going to give myself what I needed, which is literally my dad. And there is something I can actually do to give my younger self what I needed. One thing I didn't mention with the visitor that is ties into the other episodes this week is again we we were talking a lot about this gender thing and this gender essentialism and this proclivity towards left brain kind of stereotyping and internalizing when it comes to the relationships between fathers and sons logic logic i'm sick to death of logic do you want to know how i feel about your logic emotional isn't she she has always been that way. Indeed. Why did you marry her? At the time, it seemed the logical thing to do. But here we have an example. I don't think anyone would accuse the Ciscos of being anything other than masculine or good fathers and sons for the most part. Um, but it's all about emotions. Yeah, Ben is so affectionate toward Jake. Like, There's a lot of just like physical intimacy and... And, you know, you could say that, you know, Ben had to do that because the mom had died. You know, he had to be both. But again, like that's the example of what it looks like when you're not split, when you can embody both and not, you know, for a man not to th feel threatened by their innate feminine qualities is easier said than done in today's culture. <laughs> but there's an example of it. And I, I know Avery Brooks was really adamant about showing a good example of black fatherhood and I, you know, throughout the whole series. And I think he does a really excellent job of that, especially in this episode. Agreed. And it's, it's demonstrating he, he succeeds where Kyle Riker fails yeah, and where Sarek by cultural necessity, one could say fails um, in accessing that part of, of himself in order to be a better, better father. Um, one other one sort of common trait that we see in these episodes and I think is important is we see examples in all three episodes of adult sons talking to their adult father. Um, and in each case, there's some sort of really specific connection to the son when he was a child. Yeah. Right. And reliving, relitigating um that kind of feeling and no matter how old we get there are moments if not long stretches where suddenly 
you're 13 years old again, or you're six years old again, or you're however old. And something about those memories, I don't know, like you and I have been friends for a long time. And I never feel with you like I'm anything other than the age that I am. I don't regress 10 years to feeling like I'm 28, 22 again, 25 again. How old am I? How old are you? <laughs> um, How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I yeah. don't I, I don't have to do that. I can cherish the time, all the long time that you and I have had together as friends. And same thing with other relationships in my life. And I'm sure yeah. the same as you. With my parents specifically, and I, maybe this is true of other kind. I don't have any siblings, but maybe it's just a family thing where you just, you, you fall back yeah. into the emotional currents that are, have, are, have become unfamiliar because you're not a kid anymore. Yeah. No, that, that's, that does happen. You know, like these really deep seated family dynamics can be really hard to jostle from. They kind of feel like gravity wells to me. It's like suddenly I'm behaving in this very particular way and I almost just am caught by this force that's guiding my behavior bigger than myself. I'll be honest with you. I mean, it, it, it I don't really have panic attacks, but the closest that I get are those feelings where suddenly I feel like my emotions are driving the car. Totally. And it scares me. When we're triggered, which is a word that I think is like very culturally innocuous now, you know, like mm. people, people will say that and it can mean a bunch of different things. But in psychological terms, when you're triggered, is actually when you're reverting back to an emotional age when something happened and you're re-experiencing it in that moment. So that's what we, when, when therapists or psychologists talk about being triggered, that's what we're talking about. It's something happens and your inner child essentially starts driving the bus, you know, and, and you are acting like you're six or eight or whatever age you are, because that was the age you were when the initial wound happened. It's another weird like warping of time travel, emotional time travel that is like actually happening within your psychic experience. And that can be why you're having this weird argument with somebody and you're like, what is happening? Those kind of triggering events also happen with romantic partners. But the, the closer someone is to you, the closer they are to touching those landmines, essentially. Yeah. And in a, in a father's in a father son case, those landmines are like are laid by the father. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times you put them there in order to set them off at some point mm. uh, from the father's perspective. It's also that regression, I think, that happens, right? Where suddenly you're back to treating your adult child like they're a little kid again. Yeah. Because that's how you've learned. That's that's what you had to learn how to do, right? I mean, I think you think about Kyle and Will and how Kyle was left in the situation where he felt completely unprepared to parent Will as a single father, right? He did not have... He did not prepare himself. Why would he? But he did not do the work to actually find all the tools that he really needed to, to be a better father to Will. And so found this method, this this really juvenile <laughs> fighting thing that at least gave them some sort of context. And then 20 years later, they're doing the same fucking thing. Yeah. Look at, uh, look at in Journey to Babel, 
Um, there's that story that Amanda tells about Spock when he's a little kid and his pet Selot. Tell me, did he ever run and play like the human children, even in secret? Well, he, uh, he did have a pet Selot he was very fond of. Solid? Sort of a, a fat teddy bear. Which we're going to look at uh, in a couple weeks, I think. We're going to look at the... There's an episode of the animated series where uh, that's a, a plot point. Oh, young cool. Spock with his pet. I mean, in that moment, I just was like, look, no matter what race, culture, species you are, parents embarrass their children. Like, <laughs> universally true. Right, but yeah, but what is the source of that embarrassment? It is that regression. It's that I'm not a kid anymore. Stop. I, I have moved past this. This hurt. Being at this age was a trauma because yeah. I was trying to figure myself out in a way that I feel like I have now. Yeah. That may not be true. <laughs> we're always figuring ourselves out. But on some level, when we're adults, we say, I have figured myself out. I am me. Stop treating me like I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. That is still the, the really positive thing to look at in the way Ben is. We see Ben struggle with his doubts. Like he doesn't look at himself in the mirror and say, wow, what a great dad I am. Yeah. How how perfect the, a job I'm doing. He has insecurities about his father, father fathering of, of Jake and, and his and, and, and doubts about the job he's doing and worries about. Um, we see this in other episodes, worries about having Jennifer not be present yeah. um, in, in their lives. But he leads with his heart. And that is what creates and maintains the bond between them, even through <laughs> weird sci-fi nonsense. Like we were saying last week, you don't need to be the perfect parent. The perfect parent doesn't exist, despite what capitalism is going to tell you. You need to be good enough. And you need to be reliable. And you, you can mess up, but like how you, how you repair after that rupture is almost more important than the fact that the rupture ex- happened in the first place. I think we've all had experiences of like getting into a fight with a friend or a family member. And then what happens after actually makes it worse. And I think Ben really does let up on letting Jake become his own person versus continuing to think I have to take care of you because you can't take care of yourself, you know, and, and parents who continue to think that you can't take care of yourself. You're not living the life you're supposed to be. You should be this instead of whatever the hell is going on here. Like that's what ruptures parent child relationships. But when you can, as a parent say, I love you, I'm here for you. When you're older, I'm going to give you the independence and autonomy that is rightfully yours, and I'll tell you when I'm concerned, but ultimately it's your life, that is when you can have a good relationship. Elizabeth, you are a cisgender woman. You have not been and will never be, as far as we know, a father or a son. And yet, as a therapist, fathers and sons will, of course, come to you with their, uh, with their trauma, with their problems, with their questions. And as an objective observer of the fathers and sons we've looked at this week, what is the one thing you would say uh, to, to the men in, in, in those situations? 
Oh, one thing. Oh, man. Okay. I would say to fathers who have problematic relationships with their sons, how much are you trying to control the person your son ends up being? And how much does that relate to your idea about who you are and who you can be? And to the sons, I would ask, what are the qualities in your father that you do not want to be like? But how much of your full life are you cutting out trying to eliminate that small quality? You know, because when we try to say, I'm not going to be like that, we don't just cut out that tiny bit of our emotional existence. We actually cut out a big chunk of it, trying to just aim for something small. Well, as a, as a son, uh, it's a question which gives me a lot to chew on, and mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate that. We're going to leave Jake and Ben, Kyle and Will aside for now, but we're not done looking at Spock and Sarek for the next couple of weeks. We're going we're gonna to continue our, our, our little dive with them, beginning with uh, something you've never seen before, I believe, Elizabeth, which is Star Trek Four. The Voyage Home. Yep, I have not seen that. I'll be watching it in preparation of our next episode. <laughs> the one with the whales. It is um, whales? It's a really fun movie. I think, uh, oh yeah, we're doing a movie night <laughs> again. Uh, so this, that's, that's fun. Uh, it's a fun movie and it's not entirely about the relationship between Spock and Sarek, but it's a really important little piece of it um, and will help us continue our conversation. So I look forward to doing that in person with you next week. Uh, But for today, thank you for your questions and your insightful comments. I want to thank our patrons and listeners and supporters. Uh, The community is growing, and we are really appreciative of that. So thank you to everybody. Uh, Anyway, yeah, Voyage Home next week. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'll see you then. All right. See you, Elliot. I can't wait to see you.